I suspect that there will be enough data that someone will have gone through clinical trials for several of these like mainstream cannabinoids. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we got a very, very special guest, Dr. Matthew Moore. Matt, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Super excited to talk to Matt. I mean, topics are going to be exciting. And it's excited to have our first three-time guest back on, right? How are yeah. you doing today, Brian? I'm excited. I, I mean, Matt, that is an incredible accomplishment in the history of the dime. We've never had a two-time returning guest, let alone a, a three-time returning guest. And I can only wonder if you're going to be able to bring the intensity since the two other episodes are are two of our highest performing episodes. And we had a lot of requests from some specific individuals that we will not name to to bring back the doctor for a third beat. So Matt, I guess if if we just have to clarify a little East Coast, West Coast, I know with your wife, you might have some origins on the East Coast, but specifically, do you have any any loyalty East or West? That was a good angle, Brian. Thank you. So I have to give you the third coast option because uh, you know I am from Texas. And so I can't, be beholden to uh, East Coast versus West Coast. Texas is its own thing. So uh, I'll take the Texas coast as disgusting as it is. I, I love it. Our first, their <laughs> own coast, Texas. Yeah, I mean, rightfully so, rightfully so. So uh, today we're going to do a little different style than we normally do. I think we're going to just hit a variety of different topics. And the the one I was excited to get your opinion about was the off-duty pilot who was accused of potentially taking down a plane, I think for Alaska Airlines, were attempting to, let me clarify that. And he said he had taken magic mushrooms 48 hours earlier, which influenced him, altered his perspective. And Matt, just wanted to get your take on A, when you saw the headline, B, what you thought of that statement. The first thing I would say is that these drugs are not something that should be trifled with. I don't think that it is appropriate that a pilot take any psychedelics that close to proximity before doing his job or, you know, a bus driver or he wasn't, he wasn't flying. He was off duty. So he was just a passenger on the plane. I'll broadly accept, expand that to be, you shouldn't be allowed in the cabin of a plane <laughs> or the, uh, in the, you know, in, in the cockpit where you can um, do things like that. 48 hours after a magic mushroom trip is kind of, um, there are drugs that will last that long. And there's probably an amount of psilocybin that would get you there 48 hours later. But I, I find that I struggled to believe that 48 hours, unless he's a really specific anomaly. And I also am of the opinion that, again, that these aren't these aren't toys. They're used recreationally. But, you know, like people use explosives recreationally. Right. Like that's what fireworks shows are. And every year we have in any number of hundreds to thousands of people losing their hands and, and, and fingers to something that they use recreationally. So I don't think that just because it's recreation that it's safe, right? Mountain climbing is is recreation. Paragliding's recreation. You think it was like fear-mongering at all? Do you, I mean, do you think they used the fact that he made that statement to to push into the headlines to maybe for clickbait? I mean, Kellen, you weigh in here too, because like conceivably, you know, we've had conversations about it in 48 hours earlier. There could be a variety of different things that have happened since then that led to this. So just curious to know like your perspective. I mean, I think that there's no way, like, again, maybe if he took like a pound of magic mushrooms, <laughs> like that he would still be under the influence. I think, A, he used it as a scapegoat. 
And I do think that's probably like it's fear mongering, right? Like these kind of headlines are going to be obstacles for the continued advancement of getting psychedelic treatments into the hands of people that need them. Right. Like, again, recreational versus using it as a medicine is very different. But when someone sees this kind of a headline and then they go to the ballot to maybe vote on something like that, it's going to influence their opinion and that vote, from my perspective, at least. I mean, what do you think about if it was ambient? Do you think like if it was like ambient, it would make the same type of noise? They can't, though, because like with ambient and Matt can speak on this probably way more accurate, but ambient is a pharmaceutical drug. It went through a serious fda trials and clinical trials and was tested they know the side effects so someone making that kind of claim they would be like no look at this body of evidence associated with us getting it to be an fda approved drug right i mean correct me if i'm wrong matt but like well and you also have on things that are any sort of narcotic like that you'll have like the little sticker that says do not drive or operate heavy machine (laughs) what that really means is don't be in a position to make really life-changing decisions while on this drug. And if it had been ambient, I would be very interested to know what the statistic of car accidents with people on ambient are. I know that my mom took ambient for a long time. And if she stayed, you take it and you go to sleep, right? Like you take it and you get in bed. And if you don't, it gets pretty weird. And if you wake up early, also gets pretty weird in a way that most associative and psychedelic drugs that I've seen people on it's not quite the same. It's erratic, it's chaotic, and it's a total lack of making coherent connections. At least that's been my experience around people who are on ambient. And in, in a way that, like, whenever someone is on mushrooms and then they make like an outlandish claim, you're like, okay, well, I can see like in like their trippy thoughts how they got there. Ambient is like trying to make sense of the actions of a person with dementia. It's like, they're just doing stuff because their brain was like, and this does, <laughs> that's it. And like, and it's, it's not complex thought. It's very simplistic. A plus B equals C. And, and so I think like, that's why I say I'm, I would be surprised if it was psilocybin that caused this guy to do it. I'm not saying that there aren't drugs that can make you have crazy off the wall, erratic behaviors. And for 48 hours after taking them, I think that that's a cop out for the pilot. I think that there's been a lot of, of information lately on pilot mental health and how they're effectively encouraged to hide mental health issues in order to maintain because you have to have a certain number of hours in a given year in order to maintain your license. And so if you're having to take time off in order to get mental health treatment, you may actually lose your ability and accreditation to fly. And so there's a huge motivation for pilots to not address their mental health issues. And I, I think that if you if you could be like, oh, it's not a mental health issue. I, I was on drugs. Somehow that's better in, in some people's minds. But I guess the question is, why were you doing drugs before you were riding in the cockpit of a plane? <laughs> so I think he was a I think he was a passenger on the plane. And I think he had taken the drugs for I can't remember the exact things, maybe depression, mental health. I'm not sure exactly what the origin was, but I think when he was on the plane, he just decided he wasn't having a good time and he was freaking out. And um, there he thought he thought he was saving everyone, right? Like he, did he, think said, he, was saving he everyone. thought he was saving everyone. And he thought that he went to like he broke in to turn the engines off. But he thought that someone else was trying to crash the plane and they were in to get him. So it was clearly like a mental breakdown. And I mean, there are cases of like heavy psychedelics, even cannabis, right, that can force people with a history or a family history of like schizophrenia 
or something like that to have those conditions like become more prevalent through active use. So maybe it could have been something like that is that taking the psilocybin then triggered triggered his schizophrenia or whatever it could be because that's like what he was saying is that like he was saving everyone on the plane when really he was just trying to turn the engines off that's a really important conversation to have right is the effects that these can have on people who aren't like a baseline typical average person right and that's a really important conversation but we're talking about a so statistically irrelevant number right now we're talking about one guy yeah, that's such a good and we're trying to derive the reasons that one person may end up making horrible decisions. And I don't think that that's fair to the drugs. And I think it comes back to, was it to grab headlines? And I think it wasn't, it was to have a conversation about it. And it's an important conversation to have. What do these drugs do to people who have a history of, of psychosis or a family history of, of you know mental health issues? And, and we've already seen with cannabis that people who do have a predisposition for schizophrenia and multiple personality disorder, they do tend to gravitate towards smoking cannabis or consuming cannabis. Does that mean that cannabis causes people to have psychoses or is there some other, you know, concomitant factor that makes you then desire this thing? And so I think that whenever we have, right, like these conversations like this one, I think it's really important to remember the context of the conversation, which is how many thousands of people took mushrooms and didn't try to crash a plane, didn't try to hurt themselves, didn't try to hurt anyone else and successfully you know, helped their own mental health issues or whatever their intended outcome was. Even if it was just to have a good time, how many people have taken it recreationally and not done anything bad? Nothing bad has happened. But those statistical outliers is exactly like part of the challenge like we're talking about here is that like the media grabs onto the one and pulls it so far and makes it seem like it's commonplace, which is A, maybe to, for the clickbaits, B, maybe to try to reduce the the momentum behind the drug. But I guess the the pushback, Matt, I would ask you is like, what happens if you didn't, if you're not aware of your family history, you're not aware of any of these, do you think you're still susceptible to those type of breaks? And if, if you're, if you're unsure, is there a way to make sure that you can be safe or, or take these in an environment so that you're not potentially putting yourself or others in harm? As far as I know, I don't think that there are genetic markers that have been analyzed that specify that. Um, I could be, I could be mistaken on that, but the general rule for any psychedelic drug right is start low and go slow and so if you're going to be doing like even if a doctor prescribes you a drug rarely is the doctor going to prescribe you even like the high dose right they're going to start you on a low dose and and see where they can see what the minimum amount to achieve the out desired outcome is and that is really how everyone should be doing most of their drugs even as something as we'll call it non-toxic as cbd why take 500 milligrams a day if 150 does it for you it's just a waste of money at that point point. and so i think that even if you're doing things recreationally there are safer ways to do them right again go back to mountain climbing right you're like sure you could free climb up the side of a mountain. And there are people that do it. There are also people that inject fentanyl and heroin, right? And so to say that there's like not a gradient between making safe and, and harm reduction style choices and all drugs are bad, right? And and that's kind of the conversation we have all the time, which is that like that that's effectively what our society has said is that all drugs are bad, full stop. And it's like, unless it's been taken through a clinical trial, right? And then that has a whole bunch of other implications behind it as well or if big pharma is the one behind it so that is interesting i was just reading an article today about 
it was in from the economist and it was about who the winners in the american healthcare system are and the actual largest profit percentages come from pharmaceutical brokerage companies and not from manufacturers themselves or the clinical companies themselves and that's like whenever you look at the cost of a drug in europe for example germany those drugs aren't made by a non-profit company to not make money. They're still made by a for-profit company that manufactures them and sells them at a rate that they can turn a profit on. And then they sell them for one-eighth to one-tenth the price that we do. And generally, coming from the manufacturing side, the cost of your therapeutic is not in the powder that's in the capsule, especially the case with like these uh, psychedelic-assisted therapies and things like that. The therapy is far more expensive. Taking up four to eight hours of a therapist's day is an incredibly expensive uh, prospect. Even if you were just looking at regular talk therapy sessions, you're looking at at least $800. And that's like a pretty good rate for your therapist. And so most of these sessions are going to be uh, for ketamine, $2,300 $2, without insurance. That's for three doses of ketamine that altogether costs like $70. Right, so like the, the ketamine Some itself... Margins. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ketamine itself is not much of a cost and that's that's the case with with most of these um a guy said to me a lawyer told me the actual test of schedule one is whether or not there is an economic advantage to carrying a drug through the clinical trials can i take it through clinical trials and then make a profit on the other side and and if you look at what schedule one molecules are for the most part they're not hard to make they're relatively easy. A lot of them have really abundant starting materials, which in fact makes them less profitable to try to get through the clinics because it makes it that much easier for someone to try to undercut you. And so all of these drugs that are profoundly like effective, like MDMA and LSD and, and psilocybin, you can grow psilocybin anywhere in the world. You can go buy a bag of mush or bag of media uh, coated with psilocybin spores and grow anywhere in the world. So that isn't a great uh, like investment prospect if you're about to spend you know hundreds of millions of dollars to get an approval that someone can be like well i'm not treating treatment resistant depression i'm just treating my ruminating thoughts so i don't infringe on your indication and 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 so that this all at once renaissance of people dumping money into psilocybin and mdma and uh, lsd is is a really interesting ip play because that's not where the money is Right. Like, and if you don't own the clinics, I'm not sure how you're going to turn a profit paying for someone else to run your drugs. I mean, I have a, a question in terms of, of this whole process. I mean, we're, there's clearly like a line in the sand, right? Like we're talking like prescribed drugs that a doctor can tell you to take this, to treat this illness, right. In the pharmaceutical world. And then we have this whole recreational world where people can take the same drugs, but without a doctor, I guess. Right. And so for, for example, psilocybin, right? Like maybe one day there is a pill of pure psilocybin that is prescribed for a specific illness, right? But people are still going to be eating magic mushrooms, right? So how or if at all, is there ever going to be like a clinical trial associated with the recreational experience of taking mushrooms? Because it's going to be different. So how can you like make those kind of claims associated with different ingestion methods, right? Like how are, is there, is recreational kind of just like a free for all forever? And then that's the only way we'll ever know like side effects. Like you, you see what I'm saying? So I think that you're going to run into much of the same issues as with cannabis, which is, you know, polypharmacy. Um, 
psilocybin mushrooms don't make just psilocybin there are other active molecules in there and if you've done different types of mushrooms you may have learned that they have different types of effects there are some that just make you laugh the entire time and then there are some that are like that kind of make you stunned with nature and and make you feel at one with the earth and in a way that like i haven't been able to engineer right like so there's compounds in there that are giving you some sort of different effect in the same way that, you know, the polypharmacy of cannabis gives you different effects. And is that terpenes? Is it cannabinoids? You know, like that's not, I'm not even trying to broach that debate. I'm just saying whenever you take a bunch of biologically active molecules, they tend to all be biologically active at the same time. And uh, if they all have slightly different roles, then, you know, you're going to get a slightly different image from plant to plant that gets imprinted on whoever's consuming it. And that's also right, like that it plays with your own specific genetics, your own receptor types and like and, and your body, right? So like all of these things are gonna be incredibly challenging to to get through a clinic. And that's why like psilocybin as a powder, psilocin as a as a discrete synthesized powder will probably be what's approved. And I think that you'll have cleaner clinical data using something like that, which is what the FDA's claim is, right? That's why they like you know, a single entity drugs, because it's easy to see, oh, I took this and it did all of these things. So it must have been this one thing that I took, as opposed to there's three things in here, four things, six things, eight things. And well, was it one through four that did it? Was it the combination of one, two and eight? Was it, you know, and, and you have to prove all these things, because whenever you're going through the clinic, you're not just saying, oh, it's safe. You're saying, I'm proving that it does this thing. How far are we from like a personalized medicine approach to clinical trials i think that there are institutions and researchers that are working every day to make that the reality i don't think that that is the cost effective approach to healthcare in our system and i think that's why you don't see companies like merck or pfizer trying to pursue that type of thing with a whole lot of gusto who does cost effective benefit though yeah what is i mean like wouldn't i want to take medicine that's like for how my body is, you know, like, right? Like, poor Kellen. Yeah, poor <laughs> I don't think that our healthcare system is focused on cost effectiveness to the consumer. Um, it's concerned only about cost effectiveness to the, uh, to the owners. The shareholders. Exactly. Well, what if I become a shareholder then? Could I like facilitate that transition? That's what I have to do. Is that what you're telling me, Matt? You need billions. You like, <laughs> all of your... Knows. All of your like 100 million closest friends bought like 51% of every major pharmaceutical company. Yeah. Okay. That's all I need, right? Yeah. Let me write this down. What about that million, that millionaire or billionaire, Brian Johnson, maybe, who's trying to reverse aging himself? He like, is. He is the blueprint. Yes. Why don't you give some context, Kellen? I'm a big fan. I mean, like, he's focusing on his diet. And, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. Like, Inside Tracker is out there, right? Where you can get blood tests done and look at certain biomarkers and see how your diet affects it. You do this every quarter, right? But Brian Johnson is the author of the blueprint and he was a tech founder. He exited, he spends like $2 million a year on reversing aging. And he has been successful at reducing his biological age as measured by methylation of his DNA. Isn't that personalized medicine? That is personalized anti-aging, I think, right? It's sort of and, medicine. And and I mean, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a growing number of people that believe that aging is a disease as well. So that could be a personalized way to treat the disease of aging. 
Matt, do you agree with that? I think that if you have the money, you can make mountains move. Yes, resources are where it's at. That's what you need. Right. So there's things like um, AIDS, right? There have been three or four patients now that have been cured of AIDS from specific gene therapies. And so like it can be done, but it's not a generalizable thing. So like for these gene therapies, it has to be a therapy for each individual and they have to have like certain chemical or genetic markers that are already like available to be used. And I think that personalized medicine requires an understanding of the human body and anatomy and psyche that we don't currently possess. I think that, do you know who Michael Levin is? He was a guy who, it was a software engineer and then um, moved into developmental biology, actually. I'll send you all a link after this. Is, is, yeah. is <laughs> but he references cellular intelligence. Um, and I don't want to get too deep into that. So just like bear with me. And these systems, right? Like we try to use these drugs to affect a singular outcome. But like if you look at a binding model or like a receptor binding model of pretty much any drug, very few go to one place. LSD is actually one of the most selective drugs, extremely selective for the, for the uh, 5-HT2A receptor. Um, but most drugs go to like a good number of places because they're pretty similar to other, drug, uh, other molecules that uh, your body already has. Um, the receptor sites aren't hard fixed positions. There's a little bit of squishiness to them. And so they go to a lot of places, but you're trying to affect one outcome generally. Um, and, but you're sending, you're, you're, you're literally doing chemical warfare on your body, right? You're trying to get your body to do a thing with the aid of chemicals. And those chemicals are what your body used to communicate really, really complex, specific ideas. Um, and now you're taking this thing that does not treat your body specifically and doesn't translate a specific idea well at all. And so you have all these side effects. And so we have all these like offsite, offsite receptor binding that results in, in side effects, really, because you've told your body to do those side effects, right? By giving it this molecule, you've said, oh, go do this thing. And then it does it. And some people, those are worse and some people it's better, but you're not really specifically telling your body what you want. And, and your body is really good at telling your body what you want. And so we need to figure out the language that our body uses and things like biologics are really going a long way to doing that. Things like um, mRNA vaccines, you know, that come in and then specifically say, make this one thing that does this one thing, as opposed to here is, you know, Viagra. Here's this for your heart. Oh no, something else is happening. Uh, <laughs> what would that right, something right. be? Well, I don't know. We could make money off it though. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, one of the best industries to be in, right? Sex. Yeah. So sex and death. Uh, it, it made the internet a thing. <laughs> Matt, are you familiar with medicine 3.0? Not as a term, no. So Peter Tia, I think, is the one who coined this yeah. phrase, and he talks about being proactively preventing the diseases from starting. And he says, we're currently in medicine 2.0, where you get diagnosed with a disease and then you're given a, a pharmaceutical in order to try to stabilize it or to, to keep it. And he talks about being proactive versus being reactive, which I think is a plague society. And, and one where exactly like you were saying, if we can get in front of it, it would make a massive difference and maybe help and prevent a lot of these issues that you're seeing plaguing society. Kellen, you want to jump in? No, I mean, I, I I just completely agree with that whole thing. And, you know, you see like a growing body of of people kind of supporting the whole the whole concept of these kind of analysis. So like 
I mean, what do you think, Matt? Are you going to start doing these this kind of testing and like try to tailor your diet to specific biomarkers that you're seeing in your blood? Is that something you would be interested in doing? <laughs> I think this comes back to the cost-effective nature of it. Uh huh. Like, I'm not like that. Sounds like a great thing to do. It also sounds pretty costly. What happens if money wasn't uh, a factor? Yeah, if you didn't have to pay for it. Oh yeah, right. Like. I think preventative medicine is definitely the way to go. <laughs> like I'm not waiting to have symptoms to like be like, oh my head hurts. Gonna... It was the right question. You answered right. Yeah. It's, it's chasing like like chasing pain is like the it's the big no no right. And the, and whenever you're in a hospital right is like never let your patient tell you that they can skip a dose whenever they're still attached to a machine. Right. Like, <laughs> I'll probably be okay. Well, in like six hours, you're not going to be okay at all. I think being on top of things and right, like we don't have wellness care. Uh, uh, like in, in general as humans, we don't have great understanding the way that it would be required for all different genetic types and all different, you know, uh, for all 8 billion people on the planet. I, I think that there may be one or two differences between between each of us. Um well maybe AI or ChatGPT can help accelerate those advancements just from like uh informational style. Well, I mean, like, that's literally the only way that we could do something like that, right? Because there's no way a human could sit there and be like, ah, here at 246A, you actually have this methylation that occurs, which means you need this different class of drugs. And I know that because I can store all of human knowledge in my brain. <laughs> so, like, I think that that's right. Like, that's where we're going. But I think as long as we're driven by um, our current healthcare system, you're not going to get away from treatments you're always going to be you're never going to be working towards cures you're always going to be treating you know the patient this year and next year and hopefully next year and then the year after that so that way i have a patient for the next 40 years that way my shareholders continue to get revenue and and so i think you know until there is a systemic change on how we approach uh approach our healthcare system in general and try to like get people healthy and not just good enough or well enough to you know go to work or go through the motions then i don't think that that kind of health care is going to be for you or i fair so i want to give you a ton of credit and slightly switch gears is that about a year and a half ago you informed kellen and i that you believed that cannabis wouldn't be descheduled but it would be rescheduled towards schedule three and while we've seen some people go back and forth on whether or not they agree with if it should be or not Definitely want to give you your props for making that statement. And then I want to read you a quote that I read today about rescheduling down and see what you think about that. Rescheduling rather than descheduling has led to some voices in the cannabis industry claiming that the process is a Trojan horse meant to gift marijuana to big pharmaceutical interests. I intend to still disagree because of, again, you come back to the polypharmacy trying to get something through the clinic. I think that's going to be very hard. I think doing a, going to schedule three and doing naturally derived THC, like, so just extract, I think that that'll become the most cost-efficient way to make medical THC at that point. There's a lot of factors that play into that, but I don't think it's a gift. I think it's a really expensive uh, endeavor to try to get FDA approval and insurance reimbursement. Your best bet for an approval that way is going to be from Congress setting something up like the Veterans Research Bill that has to do with with smoking flour. And 
kind of sidestep the FDA clinical pathway because a lot of their requirements are not as simple as, well, it's what the FDA likes. It's what Congress has told the FDA has to like, right? And so whenever Congress tells an agency they have to do a thing, there's nothing they can do other than what the agency or what the, what Congress has said. And one of those comes back to pure chemicals. And, and it's a lot easier to get a pure compound approved for that reason. I think Schedule 3 will allow some companies who are really aggressive and not as conservative on their cash flow to try to set up institutions inside legal states. Inside, so like someone, a large a large pharmaceutical company may set up a California medical cannabis company, right? And then they would be servicing just that one state. And perhaps if they're really, really clever how they do it, they can get enough data to justify going into an, a full clinical trial. But ideally, right, by that time, it's just completely descheduled. But in the interim, I don't, I'm hoping that it will, even if it does go to schedule three, it's not schedule three long enough for it to make any difference for any real pharmaceutical company. Because, right, you're still talking years in clinical trials to get approval. You say you it, would think just it, be the, it would just be the molecule that goes schedule three, though, right? So they are talking about moving cannabis to schedule three. And that's where you get into um, bifurcated scheduling. So, like MDMA. So, hold on. You're going to have to tell our audience what bifurcated scheduling yeah. is first. And then I you had to go back. <laughs> <laughs> bifurcated scheduling is whenever you have uh, a given compound that is a controlled substance and then what is the drug product so the consumer patient form that's the drug product that can have a different scheduling than the active pharmaceutical ingredient in the drug product and so um, this is epidiolex right so Epidiolex is fully descheduled because CBD. It's the, form, it's the formulation, right? But the, yeah, yeah. And so CBD, the molecule, it's kind of the same kind of distinct, yeah. uh, differentiation you're making, right? So THC is schedule one. Marinol, well, Syndros is schedule two. Marinol is schedule three. So for the same molecule, you have three different schedulings. And then MDMA is a schedule one. But after, if it's, once it meets approval, right? MDMA is not what's being sent through the clinic. MDMA and a little capsule is what's being sent through the clinic. So that's what gets descheduled because it can't be schedule one because MDMA and a little capsule now has a approved clinical use. And so they can still say the MDMA on the inside is schedule one, but something about that capsule makes it medically relevant. So now it has to, at the very least, be scheduled two like an amphetamine. But if they make cannabis flower schedule three, it would be illogical to make THC leave it at schedule one. Um, but it does not, THC as a molecule does not inherently follow cannabis as a flower in the scheduling system. So it could very well be that they lower the schedule for cannabis flower, but not THC. And so you may still have the same, like, you know, it can't be more than 0.3 or 1% or 3%, whatever they decide to put on it arbitrarily because the 0.3% is also an arbitrary number. So I don't think that it's just a giveaway to pharmaceutical companies because you still have, it's not, it's not that simple. Nothing is ever going to be that simple whenever it comes to the DEA or the FDA. And that's why it's a kind of, kind of like a pay to play, right? You, if you pay enough regulatory advisors, they're going to get you through the system, but regulatory advisors aren't exactly super cheap. That's how they say that they haven't, they're not stopping you from playing. They're just saying, we're going to make it a little bit hard for you. These are the barriers to play. Yeah. What's the industry look like in 10 years, Matt? Like with the pharma and rec, like in your mind, where do you see all this kind of like playing out? I think that 10 years from now, 
that there will be 34 we'll have Matt back on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that there will be a large number of cannabinoid derived drugs that are approved. I think that almost all of them will be single entity drugs or they will be an in, they will be something like CBN added to melatonin or you know they will be simple binary maybe tertiary mixtures of three compounds but I, I suspect that there will be enough data that someone will have gone through clinical trials for several of these like mainstream cannabinoids. And they protect those, those clinical trials, you think? And so the protection there comes from the drug product, right? So you can't patent like CBD as a molecule, but I can patent CBD at some concentration with other molecules, excipients um, in my formulation and patent a class of formulations. And then there's also indication exclusivity. So if you get approved for an, an indication, then you have seven years from the FDA before someone else can come and try to get that same indication with the same molecule as like a generic. So I think that there will be several single entity drugs that are on the market, maybe a couple of binary. I, I, I mean, like Sativex, right? Like it is 50% CBD, 50% THC. And it is still insanely expensive to get through that clinical trial, even just doubling with the number of molecules, because it's not as simple as, oh, does this combination work? Well, does this combination work better than either of the single entities or a placebo? So it's actually four arms instead of just, you know, yes or no. So it's yes, no, maybe, and maybe. And, and so as you add more of these molecules to that, that gets harder. I think you're going to find a not totally dissimilar space, especially with more and more states doing naturally derived drugs as as being legal i mean cocaine is a naturally derived drug right like it is extracted directly out of coca leaves psilocybin lsd they're all naturally derived you can and and depending on like how you want to like phrase it uh (laughs) then things like mdma is only two steps away from a natural product and and so if it's derived well like what this is that's the great debate right what's a what is a derivative and what does what does Congress's definition of a derivative actually mean? And we cannot get a clear answer on that. That's because they don't know. So it... None of them took calculus. No, I think it's because yeah. the, people, <laughs> the people that are paying them likely haven't told them exactly what it means. I mean, based on what you're saying, Matt, like you should be living in Denver with Kellen. What's <laughs> <laughs> that supposed to mean? <laughs> you know, people in Denver seem to be very favorable of derivatives and how many steps away from that? Yeah, we're all we all took calculus. <laughs> Congratulations. So, you want to continue, Matt? I think the original question was uh, was about Schedule Three for cannabis, and I, I I think that you know, ten years from now, you're probably going to see people with. I think that it is unlikely we do not have recreational cannabis ten years from now. I think that there is a distinct. People in Colorado said that 10 years ago. <laughs> in Colorado, I mean, it's been, it's almost, I mean, come January, we will have been legal for 10 years. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> has one of the third, it has the third largest population. Yeah. And the amount of time and effort spent trying to prosecute these things is minimal even in the third largest state, the next two it's legal. So they don't care. And then the fourth one it's legal. So they don't care. So I just don't, well, I believe in democracy. And so since everyone believes that it should be legal, it will be legal. <laughs> I like that. God bless. God bless. 
So two years ago, you brought up Delta 8, and it became sweeping across the United States. Then last year, Delta 10, not as popular as D8, but definitely made some headwinds. Any cannabinoids, yeah, any <laughs> compounds, what's what's on the radar that nobody's hearing about, nobody's thinking about, that you're like, this is one where I think year from now, people are going to be quite interested. So there's different there's different approaches, right? Like a drug can be interesting for a variety of reasons and, and legality being the key one for most of these things, right? So I'm just going to go ahead and ignore D9 and D8 because those are the two main candidates for argument, right? If you were to look at something like the Bifurol, right? So the C7 tell for THC, it is significantly more potent, which is not necessarily a good thing for the things that we talked about. You don't want to like just blast yourself off into space unexpectedly. But if you're talking about trying to get like functional beverages and things like that, right? If I need to get 15 milligrams of THC into 10 ounces of water, it's going to be easier for me to get one milligram of THCP into that same 10 ounces, depending on what emulsifiers I'm using. And if I can get the same effect from, you know, one fifteenth the amount of material in there, then one, it's cheaper as roughly, you know, right now, most of the C7 is coming from synthetic anyways. And so synthetically, they're all roughly the same cost. But if I can be, if I can put one fifteenth, you know, that's, there's a real benefit to, to me, not really the consumer, the consumer doesn't notice any difference, right? But at, me as an individual, I'm having to spend a lot less on each individual package. And so I think that potency is not the end game but i think potency should be the end game for some people because right like and you know does thc or or any of its analogs have a flavor i i think it depends on the source and how purified it is um but if you can put less of a bitter terpene type smell that type of stuff and so i think you know for a manufacturer potency is going to be the end game and going, going after are going to be looking for right like I don't think consumers look for a molecule, right? They look for an effect. And once you get saturated enough, there are always going to be little like psychonaut buddies that want like the new thing, the the unheard of, the the novel thing. But most people are going to find their, you know, their eggs and bacon and be like, this is my breakfast forever now. I love it. (laughs) So THCP? Yeah, which I, I, again, I don't, it's kind of scares me. It's way too potent and people... You were scared of D10, too. I mean, you left us in a pretty concerned state, so. And, and you know, I'm still... Have you ever looked at a chromatogram from any D10 from the market? No, and I don't want to. <laughs> I stand by where I was a year ago on D10. Fair, <laughs> fair. But I just want to put THCP on the, on the board so at least we can revisit this a year from now and see what has proliferated with that. And, and so I think that you're, there's a, there's a distinct interplay between the people who want the effect and the people who want the new thing and the people who want the new thing are really important for the space, right? Because that's how we find new things and and people are willing to try them. But most of the market is looking for, I want to lose weight. So I'm going to take THCB. I want to sleep better. So I take CBN. I want to be high. So I take THC, right? Like, and if you know that you like one of those options, then why would you go to one that you're like, well, maybe it'll be good. I mean, if you get convinced by someone, you might, but I think that eventually you're going to hit like a market inertia, right? Where it hits like, 
these are the steady products that people like and and those are going to be the main things and and you're not going to have as much of the you know can i can i add a methyl group can i add an acetate to it and you know like make a little bit of money for six months and hopefully no one dies and eventually that that version of the market has to die out right like one there's only so many different ways you can modify the molecule that you're not just doing full-on like drug discovery which i i would argue pretty much already in that space do you think it ends up kind of like the alcohol industry where you have like gin which is alcohol with like certain things and you get like quote unquote gin drunk you have jack right whiskey different way of making it different flavonoids you get whiskey drunk right wine drunk versus beer drunk right you think kind of maybe plays out like that where there's like certain stapled ways of making these concoctions and that's kind of the everyone just like chooses if they like gin or vodka kind of a thing yeah and i think that you can get closer and look at like resin versus rosin versus flour right and like the ways that people like to consume now right like if someone only smokes they don't generally do edibles yeah if only if they only ever eat edibles they only ever eat edibles they smoke a vape they smoke a vape <laughs> and there are people that have large variety but I, I i you know people have their preferences and i feel i seen. don't discriminate i don't discriminate personally <laughs> I, I feel so seen right now <laughs> so the state of the market is going to be I, I think that it's already matured a lot in in the sense that there's a lot more people who i won't really call it mainstream i think the best test of mainstream uh, a person gave me was if your grandmother wouldn't do it because <gasps> and she gasped at it then it's not mainstream yet, right? If she says, well, I don't do that, then that's mainstream. That's a that's an acceptable amount of mainstream, right? And we're getting to a point where even, you know, your grandma is saying things like- I have my microdose yeah. mushrooms. Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> there it's are lots my, of cool- It's good for my arthritis. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, Matt, <laughs> you're sidetracked. I'm definitely sidetracking you. <laughs> I think that we've gone a long way, especially with CBD. And, and I think, I feel like CBN is like just this underdog molecule that shows up in every shop all the time. And it doesn't really get enough conversation space for how much is sold of it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm misreading that. Um, but that's like, it tends to be one of my, one of everyone I talk to, that seems to be one of their favorite non-THC cannabinoids. And so I think that the market is finding its groove in a way that um, hopefully lends itself then to subsequent decriminalization. As it's like all these people are taking these products, you have products that are not just, you know, trash. And then, <laughs> uh, and, and so you have like players that are legitimate or want to be legitimate at the very least. And, and as of right now, we have a lot of players who are still in it just to make a quick buck any way they can. And that's not going to lead to a matured market with really safe quality products that people can be like, okay, well, we can legalize this, even though it's what people want. There's no, right, like cats out of the bag. What are you going to do? Arrest 50 million Americans? Like <laughs> you're going to, you're going to, you're going to close down every hemp growing farm. I mean, it could be done. It would be slow and expensive, but you know how we love slow and expensive shit here. You're speaking the government's <laughs> favorite words. So, <laughs> so speaking of that, Matt, ethics and money aside, what experiment or research are you undertaking? So if I have 
if I have no morality to behold myself to and unlimited money. Yes. You are the U.S. government. <laughs> I'm going to send y'all a link to the to a Michael Levin podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't even really require th- th- this, this exploration of non-trivial intelligence among less complex organisms, right? So things like... Um, like a sea slug has a, has a discrete brain, it has cells. How does a cell know what kind of cell it is, right? All of your cells operate off the same machinery. They all have the same things inside them. They all run the same metabolisms. They're shaped kind of different. And, but they all know, like all your skin cells know they're supposed to be a skin cell. And, and they have the blueprint to be another cell too, just sitting there and they're not even moving. And you can write, you can take them back to a stem cell. And then turn them into other cells. Or you could just do pluripotency and take a, a skin cell and turn it straight into a nerve cell. And it doesn't even have to go back to a stem cell. And and all of that, right? Like if we ignore the, the way that he phrases it is that if we were to ignore these types of intelligences, we're going to be missing all sorts of intelligence that exists in our universe, right? Like plants communicate with each other and with themselves, right? Like they have roots that send signals up to the leaves whenever whenever grass is getting cut, their, their roots release um, chemicals that effectively are distress chemicals, right? Like that's um, the smell of grass, right? Cut yeah. Grass. yeah. <laughs> and, and so like these things have the ability to communicate, they have the ability to, right? Like if you, if you work backwards, when does your intelligence start? Right. And there's no one day where you're like, Oh, I'm a being an entity with, with awareness, right? Like, you just like kind of develop it like de novo from a single cell, right? Like you start out as, as a fertilized egg and somewhere along the way, all of the little electrical signals that happen inside those cells and then clusters of cells and then tissues and then, and then organs and then, and then this discrete body, eventually those turn into some sort of consciousness, but where and how, and how do you define that consciousness? And um, if, those cells like if you can't define the start point then that then there might not be a start point right like it may be a continuum of like this cell right it reads dna what is reading right it performs transcription it performs actions it responds to its environment it holds memories it can learn things it can do different things right just like you talked about you can convert a cell and from a skin cell to a nerve cell things like that you can teach it and tell it to do different things uh, and and so I would be spending all of my time, all of my money on cellular and and uh, I think he calls it somatic cell therapy. That's what he refers to his ultimately what the treatments would be: convincing your body's cells that they're not doing the right thing. The perfect example is there's plenty of types of animals, right? You break off its arm, it regrows an entire arm, but it doesn't regrow the wrong arm, and it regrows the exact correct arm every time and you grew an arm, how stupid are you? Why can't you grow another arm, right? Like if I cut off your arm, why can't you grow another one? Why don't your cells know how to grow another one? And it's not that they don't know how, they do know how, they've already grown it once, right? So what you need to do is figure out how to tell them to grow it again. Amen. And this, this is where it comes back into the, um, you're using chemical warfare to try to like send these discrete messages and really what we want is some cells to receive a message. Right. And like you have, there's lots of cancer therapies that are 
designed around that where it's like, oh, I'm going to give your body this prodrug that's activated by a laser light. And then, so your whole body has this prodrug, but it's not active. And the only place that gets activated is you radiate the tumor with like infrared light and that breaks out the prodrug. And so only, the drug is only in the direct vicinity of the tumor. And, and so that's a way of sending the message to those specific cells that I want you to die as opposed to sending it to your whole body, like, oh, we're getting poisoned. We're all going to die, which is effectively what most chemotherapies are. I think that's perfectly said, Matt. And I think that's where <laughs> we should leave the conversation. I don't know if there's really more Investigate that. consciousness. I mean, we've just taken it to a whole nother universe. So Matt, for our listeners, they want to get in touch. They want to learn more and they want to fund your experiment. Where, where can they find you? Uh, so you can reach me by email at Matthew at morescientific.com. Uh, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm associated with the dime. So go there and, and look, look me up there. Looking forward to seeing you next year. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully the state of play will be a little friendlier at that time. Yeah, hopefully. Thanks for taking the time, Matt. This was fun. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.